listeners, and welcome to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use disorders, resources to assist individuals with an SUD and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This is our fourth episode of a six-month series, where we have the privilege of hearing the story of someone thriving in long-term recovery. Each episode, we will be speaking with a member of the COE about their journey and exploring the power of recovery. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Hanir Hernandez, a member of our peer-led steering committee. Hanir is a person in long-term recovery from addiction and is committed to eliminating health disparities by working at the national, state, and local levels. He is currently a senior consultant to the Massachusetts Department of Public Health with a focus on disparities, building health equity, addiction treatment, recovery supports, and the recovery support centers located throughout the Commonwealth. Hanir has worked for over 30 years in the health and human service field, developing, implementing, and evaluating culturally and linguistically intelligent youth and adult health prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery support programs. Without further ado, let's get talking. Well, Hanir, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on and to hear your story. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invite, Shannon. Yeah, absolutely. For those listening who may not know you, do you want to just start with a little introduction about who you are? Uh, yes, Hanir Hernandez, originally from Puerto Rico, and I live in Massachusetts. Uh, and here I have a lot of family, a lot of friends as well as family and friends back in Puerto Rico. I work in, I've worked in the area of health and human services for the last 33 and a half years now, and with a specific focus on issues related to substance use disorders, recovery, um, and other mental health challenges for folks on the ground. That's a short intro for all the incredible work you've done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to speak a little bit um, about your role with the Center of Excellence? Yes. And so I am on the advisory board for the Center of Excellence, the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence, to be exact. I was thrilled and happy to have been invited uh, to participate, to um, bring my level of knowledge um, and information to the team. I work with a, uh, an awesome uh, group of people from all over the country who are um, concerned and have as a mission to delivering um, training, technical assistance, support, and services to those folks who are interested or are currently um, providing um, peer recovery support services to people from across the country. Uh, I come to that work with um, my history in uh, providing uh, and understanding um, disparities and building equity. So I have a commitment to that. And um, and I'm really happy to be a part of that uh, team. Thanks, Hanir. Well, are you ready to jump right into it? Do you want to start telling us your story of recovery? Yeah. Uh, the reason why I didn't talk a, a great deal about my um, work experience is because I figured um, with these types of interactions, I weave it into my recovery story because for me, those things are interconnected. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, I would say the following. I um, 
I again, I, I uh, was born in Puerto Rico, but I grew up here in in Massachusetts, and I I came here when I was about to be five years old. It was 1968, and the context for 1968 inner city uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, where I grew up and where I live currently, is that of the civil rights movement. And so I came to live in a neighborhood where there weren't a lot of um, Latino folks living here. There were many African-Americans, but there weren't a lot of Latino folks. So we came to live in the north end of Springfield, where we were not wanted, and where um, it was a very challenging time. And so my mom brought us here. I come from a big family, a family of 10 kids. She didn't bring us all at the same time, but she brought uh, a number of us, four of us. Mm -hmm. And it was a very challenging time. And so, you know, I went to school here. I learned English very quickly to serve as an interpreter for my mom at the age of at the age of five. I went to the public schools here. Um, we were not again wanted uh, that sort of thing, and, um, and but but we made a home here and um, we met other families who were struggling like we were struggling in terms of being newly arrived and experiencing racism and other forms of oppression, but also. Um, families who wanted to support each other. Um, and, you know, a small community um, was built here. And uh, so, you know, my, my childhood was one of being home, going to school, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, into my early teens, uh, or I, I should say pre-teens, I, I began to um, get involved with substances. My first substance was alcohol at the age of seven. Um, I took, you know, a couple of sips of that mm-hmm. uh, liquid that other people were, were drinking and mm-hmm. they were dancing and smiling and laughing. And so I was curious. And then the sure. next uh, substance there about the same time was um, was tobacco, smoking cigarettes, right? Very, very young, very young. Um, and so I, I think, it, you know, my, my substance use history begins there. And um, continued into middle school, where where you know it got it got worse. Um, I got involved in in that life, um, and I started to get arrested. My the first time I got arrested was at age eleven. Wow! And I was yeah very very young, and I was in and out of the Department of Youth Services or DYS was called here um, at a very young age and continued to use substances even more heavily. And, you know, from there went to marijuana and pills and then from that to heroin, cocaine, you know, those sorts of things. And I was always coming in and out of prisons and jails. And so, you know, at the the age of 17, I was old enough to go to, to jail and to prison. And so, you know, that, that's where, where, this journey begins for me. And, I, you know, instead of beginning with the date in which I um, stopped using substances and my, my recovery began, I begin with that because it gives some context, right, of, sure. of my history and what people go through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can also share that um, my first contact with someone 
um, who I knew to be in recovery wasn't, um, I, I, I wasn't fully convinced, but my first contact was in mm-hmm. jail. Uh, and I have permission to tell this portion of the story. Um, it was a Puerto Rican man who, his name was Bruno. Mm-hmm. And if you can imagine a 400 uh, person uh, cell block. Um, mm-hmm. And I was there for, I don't know how many more times. Um, and he, Bruno would come to my cell and everybody's cell for that matter, um, mm-hmm. who was Latino or Hispanic, because he was running what I know now to be a Spanish language um, NA um, Narcotics Anonymous group. And mm-hmm. every time, every every day he would come to my jail cell. I was doing two and a half years at the time. Come okay. to my jail cell and everybody else's. And he would um, say, Hannah, we have a group. You want to come to the group? Um, and this is the group. And I would say, hell no, I don't want to come to your group. Leave me alone. <laughs> Get the hell away from me, right? Um, yeah. The next day, Bruno would come. Uh, and then we have this group. You know, you want to come to the group? And I would say, F you, Bruno. I don't want to go to any group. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm content with doing my time. Leave me alone. The next day, Bruno would come, the same thing. And I would say, I think Bruno's getting high. I just need to find out when he's getting high. I don't believe him. He's full of crap. That sort of thing. Bruno, the next day, would come back. Haned, we have this group. You should come to the group. And at one point in time during those visits, Bruno said to me, Haned, you can get good time for coming to the group. And so that's like yelling squirrel, right? Yeah. I looked and I became interested because good time is time off your sentence. Now, being yeah. the person that I am, that I don't just go anywhere um, mm-hmm. because I'm told, I went and did a little bit of research. And he, he was right. You would get some time off your sentence if you attended group, but you would also get the same time off if you went to GD classes. So Bruno came back around. I said, F you, I'm not going to your group, but I'm going to GD classes because I'm getting the same the same time off, and I don't need to listen to you or those other idiots who think that they have a problem. I don't have a problem. Right, the problem yeah. is that I got arrested, right? Yeah, um, makes sense. So, so yeah, it made a lot of sense to me at the time. Um, at any rate, I never went to the group, but and I went and did my time. I got mm-hmm. my good time. I got my GED. So nice. credit to Bruno, right, for pushing me to do some research. Yeah, there <laughs> um, you go. Yeah. And then I went back out and used more drugs and got arrested, you know, several more times. And then I, I came back and um, the jail was overcrowded. Um, and I was there with about 12 drug charges and a whole bunch of thousands of dollars worth of bail that I was never going to get out, even if it was $5, never mind thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh-huh. Um, but I heard through the grapevine of the guys who were in jail, if you say you have a drug problem, they'll let you out. And so uh-huh. I asked, I asked, I said, who do I need to say that to? And and they said, you tell your lawyer. So the next time I, I, I went, I was brought to court. I told my lawyer, really good guy. And mm-hmm. he looked at me, he said, well, I'll send somebody there. He's a public defender from the public defender's office, right? Being poor, mm-hmm. that's what I had access to. And so he sent um, a social worker, um, Sister Margaret Gibbons, um, no longer a nun, and she would chain smoke and was a really cool person. And she came in and interviewed me um, 
I didn't know that what she was doing was an assessment at the time, but I told her, listen, I have a problem. I need to go to a program, blah, blah, blah. I gave the party line, right? Sure. And yeah. and she, she says, she asked me some questions. We interacted and she was really cool. And and so she says, well, um, what kind of program are you looking for? I said, I know exactly the program that I want to go to, uh, Sister Margaret. And it was a program in Springfield that was for Latino males, but I knew many of the Latino males who were there and they were using WOW in the program. So that's the program I want to go to, right? Sure, and she yeah. says, well, she says, I know about that program. And she didn't say much. She says, but I, you know, I can't help you if you want to go there. And I went, what do you mean? She says, well, I have another program that you should consider. It's in Boston. Now, um, the city in which I live is about an hour and a half to Boston. Uh, and I didn't have any experience with Boston at all. Um, but she said, you either take this or I leave. And I said, no, 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 don't leave. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do that program. And so she set it up. They did an intake over the phone. Um, long story short, you know, they had to go before the judge because the judge would be the one to decide. Um, I went to before the judge on a Thursday. I'll never forget this. And the judge said, looked at it, heard the heard my lawyer's recommendation heard the DEA's recommendation, district attorney, and said, nope, I'm not sending you there. You have a criminal background as long as my hand, and 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 we can't send you there. Um, you, you'll have to wait to come to court. So so they sent me back. It was a long shot, but, you know, there, there it was. I said that it was um, overcrowding. And so that was on a Thursday. On a Sunday... And they never released people on Sundays, or they didn't back then. Um, mm -hmm. A correctional officer, CO, came to my cell and said, pack it up, you're leaving, you're going home. And I said, yeah, whatever. And I didn't believe him because he, that's what he was saying. And it was a <laughs> Sunday, right? Sure. And so the word got around the block that I was being released, and a lot of the guys that I know came to my jail cell and said, no, oh, you're leaving, pack up, man. And I was laying back watching TV saying, nah, I'm not going anywhere. Um, stop messing with me and leave me alone because I want to you know, watch this TV show. And, and they said, can we get your TV? Can we have your radio? Can we have your commissary? And they kept pressuring me, and I was getting upset. <laughs> And then the CEO said, I told you to pack up. You're leaving. And I didn't believe it. I thought that they were yanking my my chain. And yeah. then um, the captain came. And so that's a white shirt. Gotcha. He doesn't mess around, right? And so he came and said, pack it up, Hernandez. You're leaving. Blah, 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 blah. And we're like, I packed up really quick and <laughs> sure. gave away all my stuff to the guys in the block. This one guy who has since passed away. He told me, mm -hmm. where are you going? I said, this program in Boston. He says, when you're tired of walking, steal a car, because you're not going to last two weeks. I said, why are you saying that, man? I know him from the street, right? And yeah. he said, because, because you're not going to last there, and no one's going to give you a ride back. And so good luck with that. But I wasn't staying in the jail cell. I said, I'm going anyway, right? Yeah. And so they released me and when the doors opened those big clanking doors right um mm -hmm. there there she was margaret gibbons in a car gave me a big old bear hug and said i'm taking you to boston to the program and i went like wow this is really happening right and so i got released on a sunday because the jail was overcrowded and she finagled something that they 
um, agreed to release me. I, 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 I said to her, this is December 20th, 1986. I said, um, Margaret, can you take me to my house so I can pick up some clothes? And she said, nope, I'm going to take you there. And so I begged, I begged, I begged, I did everything I could. And she took me. Um, really, what I wanted to do is pick up some drugs. But it was on a Sunday on December 20th. And um, very early in the morning, maybe six, seven o'clock in the morning. And there was no one there. <laughs> Everyone was sleeping. So I couldn't find anything. I went upstairs to my house, um, in my family's house, my mom's house, and there was some moonshine. Um, people drink for, for, um, for Christmas. And so I had mm -hmm. two big shots of that, picked up some clothes, ran back down, got in Sister Margaret Gibbons' car, and she, she and I drove to Boston, chain smoking the two all the way there, um, <laughs> and just talking. I don't know what we talked about, but she took me there, and I, I was going to, uh, uh, I, to a treatment program for Latino males. Mm -hmm. It was called Casa Don Pedro Albizu Campos. And so um, that's my entry into treatment, not because I wanted to go there, not because I thought I had a problem, but because I wanted to get out of prison and jail. And, mm -hmm. and so that it was a therapeutic community. And if you know anything about TCs back in the 80s and before that time, they were really strict, right? No mustache, no jewelry, no um, wild haircuts, no, no nothing, right? And a very structured mm -hmm. place. Um, and, you know, I remember getting there. The guy who did the intake is a friend of mine. Um, and a uh, friend of mine now, I didn't know him back then, but he did the intake. And while he was doing the intake, he had a, he had a I'll never forget this, um, he had a shirt sleeve black shirt on. And he was asking me questions. I don't know what he asked me, but I do know that I was staring at his track marks mm -hmm. and was saying, there's got to be someone getting high here. I just need to find out who it was, right? Who it yeah. is that's getting high. Um, there was no one getting high. <laughs> I, I tried, I looked, but, but no one was getting high. The, mm -hmm. the next day in the morning, um, the director came into the office, uh, came into the program, and he called me down. He says, I want I, I want to um, show you something. And so he was taking me to the bathroom. I'm saying, why is this guy taking me to the bathroom? So he opened the bathroom door. He says, you see, you see, the front door is always open. If you want to leave, don't jump out the window. And mm -hmm. I, that for me was strange. He says, do you know, he gave me the name of the person back at the jail. He says, do you know so-and-so? And I said, yeah. He says, he jumped out of the window and turned his ankle. And you don't have to jump out of the window. If you want to leave, the front door is open. We recommend that you don't leave and that you speak to someone when you get urges to leave because you are um, going to get those urges. And I said, no, nah, mm -hmm. don't worry about it. I got it. And that was that. All right. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly I was there against my will. I was coerced to be there. I didn't want to be there. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know what? I met people who had who I had never met before. There were Latino males, primarily Puerto Ricans, but there were Dominicans there, people from Colombia, from other parts of Latin America. It's about 40 men. And um, they were about um, giving support, understanding, um, showing love in ways that I had never experienced before. And so that freaked me out. I didn't trust anybody there, right? Because, again, I was there not against my will. Um, but they kept telling me that they 
wanted me to succeed, that they wanted me to give myself an opportunity, a chance, that that's what they wanted for me, good things, right? And mm-hmm. I'm from the street. I'm from prison and jail. I don't do well with that. Um, mm-hmm. They wanted to give me hugs, as an example, right? And yeah. I, nah, I wasn't having hugs, right? I would say, no, nah, I'll shake your hand. Um, because for me, hugs meant something different, right? In sure. prison, hugs mean something different, particularly for males. And right. um, they also wanted me to talk about my feelings. And so my feelings were, I'm hungry. I don't like it here. I want to go home. <laughs> I said, not those feelings, not those feelings, right? The feelings that that created the conditions in which you felt that you needed to use substances to mask those feelings. And today I understand that completely, but at the time that was foreign language. I was like, no, nah, right. feelings? I don't talk about feelings. <laughs> um, no, I'll pass, right? Yeah. But they kept at it. They kept at it. They kept at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and those men are, were, and continue to be responsible for me understanding what it means to love myself first and foremost Mm -hmm. and to allow others to love me and for me to reciprocate, right? And Mm -hmm. to love back. And that was a huge learning experience for me. Huge. Now, TCs at the time were 18 months to two and a half years. We're not talking about three months like most residential programs now. You know, mm-hmm. detoxes were were not that I ever went to a detox, but they were 30 days long, right? Mm-hmm. And today that's unheard of. Um, but right. back in back in the day was that. And it was a lot of discipline. And in, in, in TCs, there were phases. And you won the right to move on to the next phase if you were working on yourself in terms of being in recovery. And if you were contributing to the well-being of others in the house, which included cleaning, cooking, participating in many different ways. And so that's my entry into the recovery process. It's, it's, I'm one of those people who needed to go through treatment. Today, I understand that no one, not everyone does need to go to treatment, but I needed to. And I met mm-hmm. some really, really, really good people. Now, at the same time, that program was training me to work, even mm-hmm. though I had never worked a day in my life. Not legally anyway. I know how to make money on the street, but not legally, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they were training me. They 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 you know there were you 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 had to work um doing cleaning, and then after a while of doing that, you became the department head of maintenance. Mm-hmm. So you learned how to supervise other people and provide direction to other people and get feedback from other people. You also learned how to cook. And once you were an assistant cook for a while, then you became the department head of the kitchen. And you were responsible for kick, cooking for everybody, lunch, breakfast, dinner, snacks, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, the other thing that they had is something called an expediter. You sit in a front desk, and you record everyone who's coming in and out on a notebook with the time, who came in, who went out, who arrived, what you know, mail was delivered, all that stuff, right? On a mm-hmm. notebook. At the time, it was just, and you answered phones. And so you had to answer 
Casa Don Pedro Alviso Campo, can I help you? You know, and you, uh-huh. you, you, you then transferred costs to other people. And at the time I was like, like, okay, I can do this and I'm learning. And, but I didn't, I didn't have an idea what that was preparing me for. Right. Um, I, I didn't at the time. And, um, but, but, but soon I learned that the, that a hundred percent of the people in the facility were graduates of the facility. Oh, wow. And they were counselors and they were, the director was a graduate and all of that. And it was this training ground. We used to, the, the, the program was called Casa Don Pedro Alviso Campo, but we used to call it the academy, mm. the academy, because it was a training ground, right? And so about a year into my recovery process, they, they tapped me on the cho- shoulder and said, the, the director did, says, there's a job as an outreach worker. I didn't know what that was at the time, but you need to go and apply for it. So it wasn't a question. It was, no, you need to go and apply for it. Yeah. And I went like, really, me? And, I, you know, I spoke to my counselor. I also learned how to run groups within mm-hmm. the treatment facility because they allowed you to run morning meetings and, you know, that sort of thing. So you learn facilitation skills. Again, I didn't know that that was preparing me for, for – and then the content within – the counseling process and the group process taught, taught me a great deal. Um, and so I went to the interview and um, it was a job within the, 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 the sister programs of the organization in which I was receiving treatment. And uh, there were three people there who interviewed me. And um, I remember I bumped my head on the way out. <laughs> that, that I remember. I don't, I don't remember what they asked or what I answered. I was so nervous, right? Yeah. Um, and then that I bump remember might have knocked back. things loose. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'm sure it did. So, so, so what happened was, is, you know, I went back to the facility. They did a debriefing with me in terms of how it went, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I, I remember talking about, you know, just being nervous, that sort of thing. And then a couple of days later, they called me back and they said, we, we want you back for a second round. And I was surprised. And so I went back. They did another interview and they offered me the job. And I was like, oh, wow, these people gave me the gift of believing in me more than what I believed in myself. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that it, you know, Carl Rogers call that, caused that unconditional positive regard. Today, I understand what that is. They knew how to do it in practice. Right. right. So I got a job as an outreach worker in Boston, helping people to get into treatment. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't. I, have, I didn't have a clue. But this I did have a commitment to be in recovery and a commitment to help other people. Because at some point during that recovery treatment process, I went from being in pre-contemplation, not wanting to be there, to Mm -hmm. contemplating it, to actually wanting to be there and to participating fully in my treatment process, right? Mm -hmm. So so they knew knew how how to deal with individuals such as myself coming out of prisons and jails and all of that. And I am forever grateful uh, to them because I was there, I got a job, I'm in treatment, still in treatment and got a job, but mm-hmm. I would still have to come and participate in counseling and all the groups, the house chores, all of that, no different from you know someone who just arrived. Um, but I was also also going back to court mm. for those 12 drug charges that I still had the drug and other stuff um, that I still had. And mm-hmm. they wanted to give me a lot of time, a, a lot of prison time for that. Uh, because again, they didn't release me to treatment because they wanted to, it, because it was overcrowding. 
so I was going back and forth, going back and forth, and they would accompany me to the 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 director and my counselor and Margaret Gibbons, sister Margaret was there throughout. I still have all the letters that she wrote me. She has since passed away, but she was a champion for treatment and recovery and helping people. And um, I was still going to court. And so mm-hmm. um, what she, what she, what she, she, uh, she worked with my lawyer to speak with the DA to see if they would give me some time suspended and, um, and to remain in the treatment program. And the DA, um, I remember vividly in the hallway, in front of my mom, uh, my family, and the treatment people, he walked by me and said, fuck you, I'm, you're not getting a break. <laughs> and so we walked in. And so my mm-hmm. lawyer told me, listen, he's going to recommend jail time. I'm going to recommend susten- suspended time. But here's mm-hmm. the catch. You need to plead guilty to all of those charges. Mm. And then the judge decides, right? right? So I remember this, I remember vividly. I, you know, I, I, I went back from that conference where the, the, my lawyer told me that back to the treatment facility and they said, now it's your turn to step up. You need to decide if you leave here, fine. We're not going to call the cops right away. We're going to inform the court because we have to, but that's one choice that you have, one option. The other option that you have is you go and plead guilty and face up to what you've done and let's see what happens. And so um, sleepless nights, <laughs> right? Yeah. A lot, of counseling, <laughs> a lot of support, all of that. And, and so then I, you know, I went and I pled guilty. And so if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know what that looks like. They read every single charge and they ask you a series of questions. Do you plead okay. guilty? Do you do this, you know, under your own um, validity, do you do this, you know, has anyone coerced you into saying that you're good, blah, 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 for each of the charges, right? Mm-hmm. And so there I was pleading guilty, yes, and the next one, yes, and guilty, and guilty, and, you know, the the, the judge kept saying, speak louder, I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I kept saying yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. And then came the moment where your lawyer um, says something. And so he said, he pointed to my family being in the audience, the treatment program, the letters that I had from people, the fact that I was working in the field, helping people get into treatment, all of that stuff. And, um, and went on and on and on and on and on. Sister Margaret Gibbons had, you know, written letters and she said a few words, all of that good stuff. And there I was really nervous. And then came the prosecutor's um, turn. And so he read, the whole, right, the whole mm-hmm. um, history and went on and on and on um, around my criminal record. And it wasn't just drugs. I, you know, I have other stuff on my criminal offender record. I was gang involved and all that other stuff. And so he read all of that and he said, this guy is a dangerous guy. We cannot allow him to go back into society, regardless of what the people here have said and regardless of all those letters that have been read. And so the judge says, well, let me take a moment and um, think about what I'm going to do. And so more waiting, more waiting. And then um, he comes back and all rise. And there I was. And so he says, you know, I've taken a lot of things into account here, but I I want you to come around. uh, I was seating. 
I, I was standing with my lawyer and there's mm-hmm. a bench in front of me. He says, come around and come closer. And so he started, um, they started, he started to read the sentence, uh, five to seven, five to seven, five to seven, five to seven. These, these are years. Four yeah, times, well, right? He read that. Oh my gosh. And then, and then he said three to five, three to five, three to five, three times, right? And at that point in time, my, my knees are buckling, right? I, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of years. I'm glad I'm sitting down. <laughs> uh, well, I was standing up and, and now my lawyer is standing behind me because he didn't ask him to move forward. He asked me. Um, and then he says, you know, after he says all of that, he says, with a suspended sentence in five years probation, and still it had not registered with me because all I heard was the number of years. But I could hear, you know, people sobbing in the back, my mom, my sisters, other folk, you know, that sort of thing. And then my lawyer put his hand on my shoulder. He says, don't worry, you're going home. And so the knees came back together a little uh, bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but the judge wasn't done. He says, if I ever, if you ever get arrested, Anywhere in the country, it doesn't matter where you get arrested. You're going to be brought by whatever you would you do, whatever time you need to do there. You're going to be be brought back into my court. And I am going to give you every single one of those years, not running concurrent, but on and after. Oof. Do you do you get that? And so I shook my head up and down. And I remember him saying, no, speak up. <laughs> <laughs> and so I spoke up and I said, yes. And 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 I I. I you know, I thanked him and, and that was that. Mm-hmm. And and then my lawyer, you know, gave me a hug. Sister Margaret gave me a hug. My family, people from the program, that sort of thing. And I remember the, the, the DA storming out of there, storming out of there, right? Mm. So, you know, that's an experience for me, right? Now, get this. This is how things work, right? Um, many times. Ten years into my recovery, I'm working in the field, I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff, you know, that sort of thing. And I get a call from Sister Margaret, and she says, Haned, um, you're speaking at a conference. I said, what do you mean I'm speaking at a conference? She, she would, like, tell me what to do, right? Yeah, she's and not I, asking. I <laughs> yeah, I couldn't say no because it's Sister Margaret, right? Yeah. And um, she was really cool uh, with me, with my family, with my mom, you know, all of that stuff. And she says, well, the, the Massachusetts Supreme Court is having a conference, and the conference is happening in Springfield. And I need, they, they asked me to find a keynote speaker who's in recovery. And I put your name in and they want you to do it. And, and you have to do it. Um, and I said, well, well, sister, I need to speak with, with some of my folk. And she says, well, go ahead and do that, but you're going to do it. And, and here's the date, right? Yeah. And so this is 10 years into my recovery. And so then I got back on the phone with her a few days later after I spoke with some mentors and some really cool people that are still in my life. And they said, yeah, you should do it, man. It's, it's, it, you have a responsibility. Um, just think about what you're going to say. I have 45 minutes to, to say. Um, now, you know, I, by that point in time, I'm used to public speaking, all of that. Right? Still a little bit nervous, but I but I go in um, and I prepare for it. And I asked Sister Margaret, I said, um, so who's going to be there? He says, the judges, the district attorneys, the um, lawyers, including public defenders and probation officers are all going to be there and other staff um, from the courts. And it's going to happen in the juvenile building, but all of them have to come. 
And so this was a point in time with no cell phones, but they had PDFs. Remember those PDFs? That oh, people yeah, yeah. put their dates in and, you know, personal, whatever those things were called. Yeah. Um, so, I, so, so, so I walk in, Sister Margaret is there. I'm prepared with my talk, you know, that's it. And so I noticed, I see the, the DA who didn't want to give me a break. He's sitting there. And she told me he was going to be there. The mm -hmm. judge who sentenced me was there as well. And a whole bunch of other, and my lawyer was there and a whole bunch of other lawyers that I had had. And mm -hmm. a lot of people that I didn't know, including juvenile probation officers that I had had. So, so you may imagine that, right? Oh, yeah. So, this is the so ideal give, poetic justice, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I give my talk and I want to, I, I want to be straightforward, but I also want to be kind, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I gave my talk and I remember that when I talked about the fact that I don't believe in second chances, um, everyone looked at me. And the reason why I don't believe in second chances is because rarely people get to do things on a second chance. I believe in as many chances as it takes for people to get what they need. And I remember looking at the DA when I was doing that, and he was down here with his PDF in his face. He wasn't looking at me. He, mm -hmm. he barely looked at me throughout the talk. Um, but, the, but the judge looked at me and everyone else looked at me and and then I got a standing ovation when I was done and um I was still looking at the audience as I'm walking down the DA did a beeline for the door never came to me never said anything but you know who did the judge he came wow. and he shook my hand and he said you know what you've made me proud and and thank you for doing that and I, I'm I, I know your family's proud too and so Sister Margaret was there. We had, you know, a little conference with the judge and other people wanted to speak with me. So that's how things happen, right? You, you never know what opportunities you're going to get. You never know um, mm -hmm. what opportunities you're, 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 you're going to have to make an impact. And because I still work in the field and I come in contact with a lot of criminal justice folks, they still remind me of those interactions and what they thought of me, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so fast forward today, I am 34 and a half years in recovery. When people Congrats. said, I thank you. When people said I wasn't going to live to be 18, you know, uh -huh. and I actually believed that myself, right? Um, which is mm -hmm. ironic to say the least because Hispanics and Latinos in the U.S. have the, liest, the longest lifespan. So why uh -huh. would you think that you're not going to live to be 18? That is the number that substance use, that um, drug life, that other challenges at the community level, including poverty and a whole bunch of other stuff, do on the minds of people um, where we begin to internalize messages that mm -hmm. are um, that should never be internalized, right? That should mm -hmm. never be internalized. So I'll say a few more things because I, I, you know, I want to fill in the, the the gaps there, right? I, I went from being an outreach worker to mm -hmm. doing what I'm doing now, and there's a lot in between. And the reason why I share this stuff is because I believe in strength and hope, and those mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, in the beginning of my recovery, when I heard people say they had six months, a year, I would say they're full of shit. That's right. not possible. <laughs> That's not yeah. true. When I first heard the first person say that they had five years in recovery, I was really taken aback. I said, man, these people, they just love to lie, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because that's not possible. And then I met people with 20, 20-something 20 years, and 
for me in my mind that that wasn't possible right it was like i i, I can't i can't imagine uh doing that and so you know today i live a day at a time moment at a time i do what i need to do right to make a contribution in other people's lives and that in turn helps me um but 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 it's a lot of hard work so when i was when i was a, a, an outreach worker i did that that work for about a year maybe a little bit over a year and um that was the only job I ever applied for, believe it or not. Oh wow! In my thirty something, yeah, in my thirty something years of being in recovery and working in this field, um, this this health center um, was working. It was the eighties, and there was a lot of people dying of HIV/AIDS. And this health center had hired a social worker um, to work with uh, to provide some groups therapy and support groups for people living with HIV and AIDS at the time. And those folk who were in her group had kids. And so they con- they contacted me. This is my first consultant gig, as, as a matter of fact. Um, they, they contacted me and said, can you come? We, we, because I'm an artist. I paint, I draw. I've done that since I was a kid, that sort of thing. And I had done some stuff in the community in Boston. And so they heard of me and they wanted someone to come in basically and babysit was basically <laughs> the thing. And do some activities with the kids. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as I usually do, I checked in with my mentors. They said, it's a good thing, but are you really just going to go and do art with them? Those <laughs> kids need you and you need to do something that's a little bit more creative. At the time, I was taking some classes at the Mass College of Art. Mm-hmm. So I went, I said yes to the gig and um, I went to the Mass Art Store and bought a whole bunch of art supplies, um, even more than what I already had. But, but I bought some big paper, um, uh, rolls of paper that you can roll out and people can lay on them and you can outline them, right? Oh, cool, yeah. And, and so, you know, I came up with this idea. I said, I'm going to have all of these kids. There were maybe seven or eight of them at the time. Um, and they were, we were in a separate room from their parents who were, you know, actually receiving therapy and support for, you know, living with HIV. Some of them had substance use disorders, all of that stuff. And so... Um, I went in, rolled out the paper, uh, and and cut e- e- uh, for each kid a piece of paper, and mm-hmm. then I gave instructions. Not you're you're to lay down on your piece of paper. Your partner is going to outline you, and then you're going to outline them. And so they did that, and so anxious to see what was next. And I said, um, I want you to um, to draw yourself in as you see yourself now, mm. mm-hmm. now, currently, in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Now, these are kids traumatized by substance use disorders from their parents, parents who had you know, HIV. All of them know that their parents have HIV. They are aware that, um, you know, people from their family, from the community are dying left and right, all of that. And so they drew themselves in, they painted themselves in, and it was a really powerful experience and it was very difficult you know, there, a lot of tears mm-hmm. including mine and um a lot of reluctancy in terms of what to put in but you know I, I worked with them for 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 a while and they did it as kids will right they're resilient in many different ways and then i cut another piece of paper for all of them mm-hmm. and trace yourself again blah blah blah, blah. this time I want you to draw yourself as you see yourself in the future. 
So your hopes and aspirations. Yeah. And and they got into it. And now they were smiling and laughing and drawing themselves in, you know, as teachers, as doctors, as as people from the community, as workers, as, you know, a whole bunch of aspirations, right? Mm-hmm. And so as I'm doing this, um, at, at one point, I glanced towards the door and all the parents and the social worker were at the door and the parents were crying. Mm-hmm. And that was really powerful because they called me in to be a babysitter. <laughs> right. And, th- and there I was doing what I do, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they, you know, they they came, they thanked me, they hugged their kids, they took the papers with them, they took them home, all of that. And then the social worker and the people who contracted me wanted a meeting. They said, what did you do? I said, well, <laughs> you called me to do something with them. And so mm-hmm. you didn't tell me what I couldn't do. Right. Did yep. I do something wrong? I was a little bit nervous. I was in my early 20s. Mm, and yep. they said, no, 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 we love what you did. Can you do more of that? And so that's that's my entry into program development, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> soon, soon, soon after that, I got a call from an agency, Hispanic Office of Planning and Evaluation. I ended up working there for 20 years. But they called me to develop the first of its kind in the New England region, um, a peer education program for Latino youth around HIV and AIDS. Um, because of that experience that they had heard from that we had done. And it was a research project funded by the New England Research Institute. It was published. We presented it before Congress. So there's there's evidence of that on the record. And it was 16 census tracts in Boston where the implementation took place. And the um, control site was in Hartford, Connecticut, 16 census tracks there. And so we developed the first of its kind peer education program for Latino youth. We made the connection with substance use disorders, with unsex, with unhealthy sexual activity, all of that. A lot of people mm-hmm. would say, oh, you're, and we were providing condoms and education, very explicit in middle schools and in high schools. And that mm-hmm. was a no-no, right? And people said, oh, you know, the, you providing condoms, um, condones sex, and all those kids are going to begin to have sex, all of that. Um, our our demonstration um, proved that HIV rates went down, sex activity went down, and that providing education, including condoms and demonstrations with dildos and all of that, mm-hmm. um, was not what people had thought. And so, you know, that's my entryway into prevention. And so mm-hmm. I am a certified prevention specialist, and I've been working on prevention for as long as I can remember. I'm also a certified and licensed drug and alcohol counselor. And, um, and, and so it, it, within that work, I've also done a lot of work in recovery and recovery supports so that mm-hmm. you see that my trajectory is not just around treatment. It is around right. prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery supports because I had good mentors who said to me, Hanel, don't box yourself into a corner. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Because when you do that, you miss the boat on many different things. At the time, I didn't really understand, but you know, I followed direction and these were really good people who had never steered me wrong. And so I did that. And so um, I worked for the first 10 years in the field at the Hispanic Office of Planning and Evaluation with mm-hmm. my GED. And I didn't, I wasn't certified, I wasn't licensed, but I was supervising people who had bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and at least two had um, doctorate degrees. And so, this part of me 
um, was always insecure mm. because even though I was doing the work and I kept, you know, I went from, from a staff person developing that program to the project coordinator, to the program director, to director, we replicated that model with tobacco cessation, with, um, with substance use, with a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and, you know, I was promoted to deputy executive director of the organization. And so I was supervising a lot of people with a lot of credentials. And there I was with my GED and in mm-hmm. recovery. And some people would say, yeah, that's an awesome thing. But to be able to experience that is one of insecurities because those insecurities were embedded in my education experience. Now, I didn't talk about high school because I never went to high school. I dropped out the last day of middle school, not because I didn't understand the material, but because I was using substances and gang involved. Mm-hmm. And so my mentor said, you know what? You, you, you can go to the university and you can go back to school and you can do, you know, you can compete there. My head was telling me, no, you cannot. And when you talk about going back to school, <laughs> when middle school, right? Middle yeah. school. And- <laughs> And my little GED experience in prison, right? Um, but you know what? I went to I went to a training program out of BU. It was called at the time the Join Together Fellows Program, where about 15 people were selected from across the country to participate. All of them had degrees. The only person without a degree was me. There I was again. And I I, I met another great mentor who who said, Wow, you you know, every time you talk, people pay attention and you know, what you have to say is really important, all of that stuff. Really good feedback from the people in the program. There, there were MDs there. There were PhDs. There were people with masters in social works and psychology and all of that other stuff. And, you know, again, I didn't have a degree. But I learned that I could participate in that process and that I wasn't the brightest bulb on the tree, but I wasn't, you know, <laughs> what, I, what I had told myself for a very long time and what teachers had said about me. Not all of them, but select few. You're never going to amount to anything. You might as well think about vocational school. You're not college material. No one spoke to us, kids of color, about going to college anyway at that period of time, not in the U.S. Mm-hmm. anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And so I decided to go to go to school, and I applied with all of my fears. And I learned and relearned the same thing over and over again, that I that voice in my head that said that you can't do this was really a detriment that I needed to fight against it. And I fought Mm -hmm. against it. I did a bachelor's degree um, in health and human services. And I said, well, if I can do that, I can do a master's degree. I want to get a master's degree in psychology and counseling with a concentration in substance use. And while I was doing that, I became certified as a an addictions counselor, um, and I became certified as a prevention specialist and licensed as a counselor as well. And then I said, well, here it goes. I'm going to do a PhD. And, um, scary, <laughs> scary, scary words to come out of the mouth, but again, good mentors, good people. Mm-hmm. And I fought against my inner you know, voices again, telling me I could not do that. And I went and did a PhD. So yeah, I have a PhD I have more letters after my name than letters in my name, but I also have a GED. <laughs> and a GED, I got in prison. And it was easier to get a GED in prison. It was more difficult, I should say. Rephrase mm-hmm. that. It was more difficult to get, to get a GED in prison than to get a PhD out here. Why? Because in jail, you can't 
call anybody about math. You can't <laughs> cry about science. You can't, right? You can't go to the guys in the block who are getting high and say this, that. It's not cool. But on yep. the street, in society, I could call and frequently did call peers and mentors and people in my life and cried about advanced <laughs> algebra and, you know, biostatistics and advanced theories and counseling and all of that. Um, so you, that's a part of my story as well. And I don't, again, I don't say that to put myself on the back, but I do say it because I once sat in an audience where audiences, where people said, you're not going to amount to anything. You're not going to be able to do that. Mm. But there were, there were also people who said, yes, you can. And in Spanish, we say, voy a ti, pago doble. I believe in you and you, you can do it. Um, and I believe in you. And so that unconditional positive regard has carried me. It has taught me that I need to be responsible for myself. And in doing so, I can be responsible for others. And so, you know, I go from, from that experience to teaching at the university level, graduate level courses undergraduate level courses to training. I currently, I direct a program that trains Latino folks in Massachusetts who want to become certified or licensed drug and alcohol counselors. I have two training sites, one in Springfield, Mass, and one in Boston. And we do that. I work with a wonderful team of folks who are trainers with me in that endeavor. And we do um, help people, right, get in. A significant portion of those folks, all of them are Hispanic or Latino, but a significant fortune of those folks are also people in recovery. So I believe in providing those opportunities. On my team, there are several people who are in recovery who teach the classes. And then we just help that program be replicated for African-Americans. So we are focusing on issues of disparities and building equity. And right now in our field, there's a strong emphasis on equity. Mm -hmm. Um and addressing disparities, but just know that my entire life has been about addressing disparities and equity because I've worked in communities disproportionately impacted, right? Mm -hmm. um, You've lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, aside from living it, right? My, my, mm -hmm. my entire experience has been about that. And, um, you know, I went from being this guy in my family where no one trusted <laughs> to now being the person where everybody calls a little bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, when they when they need advice, suggestions, you know that sort of thing, and mm -hmm. you know I I I work in in that program, and I also am a consultant to a number of initiatives at the national level. Um, over the years, I've consulted on CDC projects, HRSA projects, SAMHSA projects, and um, and I'm working with the Center of Excellence, right, which is a SAMHSA funded mm -hmm. initiative. And all of that is possible. You know, I, I was called by the folks there inviting me to be on the advisory board because uh -huh. of my experience and my work. And so this, you know, kid from Puerto Rico grew up in the north end of Springfield, um, speaks at national conferences and has traveled and worked in every single state except the state of Alaska. And um, most of the territories except Guam. Um, and I pinch myself because they pay me to do something that I would do anyway. Right. And I pinch myself because they pay me and they think that I come there to deliver information and resources and I do that. 
but they don't know or they don't understand that I get much more back from mm. them that I could ever give. And that in turn makes me better at helping other people. And all of that is grounded in my recovery processes and grounded in my view of the collective. Because I don't believe in, I am self-made, I'm not. I am a product of my folk, of my people who have um, supported me throughout this process. I don't believe in rugged individualism. That for me doesn't enter into the equation, not in recovery and nowhere else in my life, my education experience and whatever. I don't believe in that because it's not true. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I do believe in taking personal responsibility and I've done that. Mm-hmm. But my people have also held me accountable. You see, personal responsibility mm-hmm. is grounded in the collective as well. And I don't believe in pull yourself by, by the bootstraps because A, even if you had boots and you were the strongest person in the world, that's not possible. No one can pull the, themselves up by any bootstraps. But mm-hmm. B, because I know that many of the people who are struggling with issues of substance use, mental health, and other co-occurring disorders, they don't have boots. Yeah. So never mind pulling yourself up by anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's a collective effort that brings us to where we're at. And for me, again, all of that is possible because of my recovery. My recovery is grounded in social justice. Mm-hmm. Because of my experience coming to this country at a tumultuous time, as I said in the beginning, but mm-hmm. also because I went to a treatment program that is called Casa Don Pedro Albizu Campo and Don Pedro Albizu Campos was a Harvard graduate, spoke seven languages and graduated from Harvard in 1916 and spent and was the president of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and spent 25 years in prison because he fought for Puerto Rican independence. Mm-hmm. That's where I come from. That is a part of my history. That is where my recovery comes from. And that's why my commitment to addressing issues of disparities and equity is connected to. And my pathway includes a whole bunch of other pathways as well. But it's very much centered around issues of social justice. And um, and again, I, I get to speak with people like you, Shannon, right? <laughs> and with other folk and talk about what it is that I do and why I do it, that sort of thing. And then I get to reflect back on those things and um, help other people with their own processes, right? Mm-hmm. And today I believe in the multiple pathways of recovery, right? Um, because when I first was an outreach worker, I, I believed in my way or the highway, that everyone needed a TC and right. everyone needed mm-hmm. to go to treatment. And if you weren't doing it the way that I was doing it, abstinence-based, you weren't in recovery, and I had all of those judgments. Mm-hmm. My process has taught me that there's more than one way of doing things. And what I need to do is to understand people better, to put a menu of options before them, they get to choose what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it. And I get the privilege of being a cheerleader, a supporter of that process, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and that for me is well, like mind boggling, right? Because I go from being very rigid mm-hmm. to being way more flexible. Um, mm-hmm. 
And, and then I get to see the results of that with the hundreds, if not thousands of people that I've met who are in recovery, making a contribution to our folk and changing um, our environment, our communities, our families in profound ways. Hanir, thank you so much for sharing what you did and just the energy and bravery that you bring to our field. And for me, it just, it's all about helping people be their best so their best can be bigger and better. And I just think you're one of the best people at that. And it's a privilege to get to speak with you and hear you. So thank you. Thank you, Shannon. The privilege is mine. Um, and, you know, thank you for everything that you do as well. Because again, I believe in the collective. It takes all of us working together to make um, the changes that we need to make in our own lives, but also to make improvements in the lives of other people. So thank you very much. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. To enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time. Thank you.